cult's history is very blurry. But what we do know about them is that they were involved with sacrifices, naked rituals, and the preservation of a teenage corpse. That's my kind of Tuesday. The group was led by a mother and daughter who fleeced their followers out of thousands of dollars by promising eternal life and great wealth. And they said they would achieve this promise through talking to angels. Today, we're going to tell you about the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven cult. Just rolls right off the tongue. And they started in the early 20th century. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. And yes, today it is your lucky day because we're covering the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven. This group was active from the early 1920s to roughly 1930. We're going to tell you how its leader, May Otis Blackburn, along with her daughter Ruth, went from having dreams of Hollywood stardom to leading this very bizarre Californian death cult, one that required followers to hand over their wealth to their high priestess. I've said it once Mm -hmm. and I will say it again. If you can't be a Hollywood star, be a witch. Absolutely. Next best thing. Absolutely. I think it's a natural ladder of career failure <laughs> try to be fail up yes. fail upwards yes it's like when people say it wrong and they say shoot for the moon and if you fail you land amongst the stars and I'm like it's the wrong way round the moon is much closer to us than the stars are <laughs> so you're not going <laughs> to land on the stars if you shoot for the moon I learned a star thing today you'll like this oh, tell me. so in the Big Dipper mm-hmm. there are two stars that are dimmer than the others right oh okay and in Roman times that was basically the eye test so if you could see the dim stars in the Big Dipper then you were allowed in the army but if you couldn't see them you weren't oh that's nice that's nice isn't it here's what you got probably entirely untrue but uh, that's not my problem moving on <laughs> We're not here for facts. (laughs) We're here for entertaining stories. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Before we get into May Otis Blackburn and her odd cult, we just want to mention that the cult's history is a little hazy, especially when we're talking about the early years. So for much of this episode, we leaned on the independent research done by Samuel Fort, who wrote about his own findings in Cult of the Great Eleven. So let's get into the early lives of May Otis Blackburn and her daughter, Ruth Wheland. May Otis Blackburn was born in 1881 in the very ominously named Storm Lake in Iowa, We have Silent Pool here Mm. in Surrey, which is equally eerie. 
And May's dad died when she was about four years old, which in 1881 happened to literally every other person. May moved around quite a bit. She lived in South Dakota, Minnesota, Portland, and eventually landed in California. She started hearing voices when she was a child and described the experience as a type of constant companionship, a, quote, spiritual dove. In October 1897, 16-year-old May married a Canadian named Augustus John Wheland. She left him just two years later in 1899 because he reportedly had a gambling and an anger problem. You speak to invisible birds, babes. I think maybe... Nah. Maybe it's... Leave him alone? No, they're my two deal breakers. Gambling and anger. Gambling, anger, chuck and drinking problem. Is mm. No, no, thank you. Bye, sir. Well, yes, bye, sir, indeed. But May was actually pregnant at the time of their separation and gave birth to their daughter, Ruth, the same year that her and Augustus parted ways. So not long after Ruth's birth, May apparently received a letter from a doctor in California informing her that Augustus had been shot and killed in a dispute over mines. Oh, dear. What a very 1890 yeah. thing to have happened. Yeah. Is he, there will be blood? There, 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 there will, there be, will be blood. Yeah, yeah. I think it came out in the same year as No Country for Old Men. And I always get them confused. Mm -hmm. But I saw that loads of psychiatrists have got together and watched loads of films about psychopath. And they're like, No Country for Old Men is the closest portrayal of an actual oh, really? psychopath that we have in pop culture. Yeah, That's very interesting. So after her estranged husband was killed in some sort of mining duel in 1900, May left Ruth, her daughter, in the care of her mother and stepfather, and then she moved to Minnesota. She married again, but she didn't tell her new husband about Ruth. She led the new husband to believe that her daughter Ruth was actually her sister. Oh, no. Her very EastEnders. Isn't it Robin Williams who... No, it's not. It's Jack Nicholson, mm -hmm. whose sister's actually his mum. Yeah, Ted Bundy childhood. Oh, yes, true. Yeah, yeah. And even Ruth, for a while, actually believed this lie and thought that May was her sister and not her mum. That's confusing for everybody. Yeah. You're either going to be Jack Nicholson or Ted Bundy. It's one of two. Pick one or the other. So in 1905, May and her then-husband moved to Washington State, where her parents and Ruth, her sister-slash-daughter, were living. Over the years, May had several husbands and suitors. Several husbands. Okay. And one partner actually ended up in prison, and another attempted to take half of May's estate which was valued at around $50,000. In today's money, that's over $1 million. So May also had an affair with a lumber tycoon named Fremont Everett, which sounds like the biggest fakey, fake, fake, <laughs> fake name ever. Oh, this is the H.H. Holmes Times. Mm -hmm. You can basically do what you want. You can be called Fremont Everett if you want. I mean, it's kind of one of the lesser sins that it were is. going on at the time. It's kind of a great name. I like it. Sounds like he's a part-time adventurer, part-time lumber He sounds mate. like a lumber tycoon <laughs> is what he sounds like. And May reportedly took photos of the two of them that she could use as collateral. Ooh, so remember, she's sexy not, photos. She's not married to Fremont. Uh -huh. She just has an affair with Fremont. Right, right, right. But in the 1900s, didn't you have to sit for like half an hour for a photo yeah. to expose? And this, the photo is probably just them like touching fingertips. <laughs> it's just like of him like touching her ankle. Oh my God, yeah. But yeah, she's yeah. like, hold it. Right there, right, right there, right there, right there. Hold it, hold it, hold it. It's expensive. quick. Oh, good, it's done. I mean, great. That was great for me. Thank you so much. She really wanted that collateral. <laughs> 
So May Otis Blackburn made a lot of money from her male friends, but she also earned income from an apartment building that she owned. May's daughter, Ruth, got into performing when she was young. In 1917, when Ruth was about 17 years old, she starred in a locally made Portland movie called A Nugget in the Rough. Excellent. I love that. I love, I can just see that on a poster now. A locally made Portland movie, A Nugget in the Rough. Yeah. I'm assuming it was a nugget of the gold variety and not the chicken variety. I was going to say, Hannah, would you like to give me the elevator pitch for this film? What is it? What's it about? Okay. Yeah. A Nugget in the Rough Mm -hmm. is Ronald McDonald's quest to find the perfectly shaped McNugget, right? (laughs) And he treks his way through Oregon, along the Oregon Trail, gets dysentery like they all do. Uh But somehow he survives by stopping eating the horrible food and water that was giving him the dysentery and eating his own clown wig instead. And then he has a hallucinatory prophecy Mm. of the McNug. And he finds it and then he makes McDonald's and now we all have the golden nug. I see. So it is the origin story for McDonald's. Yes. I see. I see. Excellent. I would watch that. I would watch that more than one about a gold one. Let's make it. Coming to a cinema near you. Apparently, this nugget in the rough, unlike my nugget in the rough, which will obviously be funded by our patrons, (laughs) this was funded by a production company that May had established herself. And she'd done that because May wanted to help Ruth with her performing career. So in 1918, they left Portland and headed to where other than Los Angeles. And Ruth supported the two of them in LA by working as a, quote, taxi dancer, which is basically the early 20th century version of a lap dancer. Maybe she was doing it in taxi cabs. I don't know. I was going to say, maybe it's like the other meaning for the word taxi, like to taxi, like when a plane is Like to wait. Or is it when it's like slowly moving, like when a plane is taxiing? Oh, so she was lap dancing really slowly. Just slowly slides up your lap. (laughs) Yeah, like in the war over here where you couldn't be, the Lord Chamberlain's act was you couldn't be naked on stage if you were moving. So, you know, there's a film about it with Will Young in it and he sings a song about having a little green hat. (laughs) Lady Windermere's girls, something. So in the war, Mm -hmm. this lady realized that her son died without ever seeing a naked woman. Yeah. (laughs) What an interesting first thought. It's a good film. (laughs) And so she was like, that's awful. So she started these like naked shows at like the windmill or whatever. But the Lord Chamberlain's act meant that they had to be completely still on stage so they're naked but like oh I see so it's like the difference between like it's erotica it's not pornography because no one's thrusting (laughs) and then when the Lord Chamberlain's act finally stopped which I think was in the 70s it was like at the Shaft Theatre where I used to work there was a production of Hair and the whole point of Hair the musical is that everyone's naked at the end and when the Lord Chamberlain's act ended that's when Hair opened at the Shaftesbury well yep history of the West End with Anna McGuire history (laughs) And boobs. (laughs) So, Ruth, we don't know whether she was still or whether she was moving. But we do know that she followed in her mum's footsteps and started marrying pretty quickly. She married a railroad clerk by the name of Edgar Jack Rickenbar. May lived with them and reportedly spent her days reading the Bible. And just like her mum, Ruth went through quite a lot of men over the years. She had a knack for convincing suitors to loan her money, which she never repaid. The press later dubbed her... A girl of many loves. In 1921, Ruth separated from Edgar. 
A year later, she met Arthur Osborne, who worked as a laborer in the oil fields. Ruth told Arthur that she was writing a book with her mum, and the book would explain the origins of the universe, the purpose of man's existence, the nature of God, and how to find hidden treasure in oil. So Ruth went on to say that the Bible was actually just a metaphor and that their book, so the one that she's writing with her mum, apparently, would explain the Bible. And Ruth also said that an angel was actually dictating the book to them. So don't worry if Mm -hmm. you think we're just two random women, one who works as a taxiing lap dancer and the other who just sits around reading the Bible all day are writing it. No, no, no. An angel is actually doing it. That tends to happen with these things. Mm-hmm. But the angel's too busy to be typing shit out for themselves. Yeah, it's just a spiritual dove. Dictating. <laughs> just dictates it. Caca. <laughs> angels on your body. Angels on your body. <laughs> so Ruth also told Arthur that she and her mother had been commanded by heaven uh-huh. to create a new religious order centered on their book's teachings. I like the idea that up in heaven, God and the angels have sat around. They're like, it's just not going that well. Mm. I feel like people aren't bible enough. Yeah, Command this woman and this woman who she pretends is her sister, but is actually her daughter. Come on, go angel. Caca. Yeah, caca. This is me being God. This is my God voice. I see. I know everyone's extremely busy ramping up for World War One, mm-hmm. but I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> because the women on stage aren't allowed to move when they're naked. Yeah. So to obviously carry through with heaven's command and deliver this book of a new religious order, Ruth knew that she was going to need some money. And that's what she told Arthur, her new squeeze. And Arthur Osborne actually gave it to them. After hearing actually what it was going to be used for, he gave her the money. And he gave them enough money to leave himself penniless. That's too much money, Arthur. Mm. That's too much money to give away. And he reportedly then enlisted in the army and eventually got a posting in Hawaii. And there ends our affiliation with Arthur. He doesn't come back in as a cameo. Bye-bye, Arthur. Thanks for the money. Ruth and May claimed that the angel Gabriel, also not just any angel, the uh, the top dog, said to them, quote, I am Gabriel and you are the two witnesses God has chosen to announce the end of the world. Oh, that's fun. Me? Little old me? (laughs) And according to May and Ruth, the end of the world would be February 6th, 1925. Mm -hmm. And they were chosen to warn of the prophecy and to find others who would help them on their divine mission to save the world from ending. Because you can't save the world from ending and wash your own pants. Also, why are they saving the world from ending? I thought that's what was meant to happen. I mean, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> but they're like, the archangel Gabriel came and told us that mm-hmm. we're going to tell everybody that mm-hmm. the world's going to end on the 6th of February, 1925. But then they're like, we're also going to save the world from ending? Yeah, I think maybe, I mean, the classic thing is like the the righteous will be saved and uh, the, the baddies mm-hmm. won't. So yes. they're collecting the righteous flock, Okay, okay. And their reward for collecting these very loyal sheep would include the following things eternal life for all of those who helped to save the world and then once humanity was set right to establish a quote royal family of the chosen 11 may would later refer to this as the divine order of the royal arms of the great 11 
And the Great Eleven would be a spiritual family consisting of Ruth, May, obviously, and nine other women, all of whom would reign over the earth as queens. Marble palaces would be erected for each woman in Hollywood. And, and the queens would be granted a hoard of gold and precious stones that were somewhere underground near Bakersfield, California. And last but not least, the angel Gabriel would designate 11 kings for every queen. So it's like a reverse harem, I'm kind of into. Mm -hmm. Between 1918 and 1925, Ruth and May would go back and forth between living in LA and Portland, spreading the message of their mission and trying to find people to join them on their quest. Well, that's quite the uh, trip. I mean, yeah, so far, all they're doing is swindling a few men. That I'm more right with, I think. I mean... Apart from Arthur, I do feel sort of a bit bad Yeah, he's got no the money. The lumber tycoon, don't give a shit. <laughs> Arthur's got no money and he had to join the army. Yeah, now he's in the <laughs> army in Hawaii on his own. But uh, don't give your money to people who are saying crazy things to you. Don't give your money to anybody. Yeah, everyone was saying loads of nuts shit back then, though. They were. But, like, it's difficult to pick which one's the least nuts. This is true. This is true. But, yeah, stop it. That would be my advice. Especially if you're on Tinder. Don't give your money to anyone on Tinder. <laughs> Coming up, how may Otis Blackburn and Ruth convinced followers to give up their wealth for eternal life. So let's get into how May Otis Blackburn recruited her followers and earned her fortunes. Plural fortunes. Not even a singular fortune. A woman of many loves and a woman of many fortunes <laughs> between her and her daughter. Dynamic duo. From 1921 to 1924, May Otis Blackburn recruited a core group of 70 to 100 followers who were mainly from the Oregon area. May's theology was a combination of pantheism, concords, numerology, and paganism. Her followers admitted to not understanding her theology, but went with it because of her promises. Everybody's favorite, wealth and immortality. Yeah, who can blame them? Yeah, you're like, that's great. So pantheism, Hannah, I can tell you what pantheism is. Oh, thank you very much. Is. It is the belief that the universe itself is God. Okay. Or is identical to God. So this is what my grandmother used to believe, my dad's dad. She used to believe in, I didn't know that's what it was called at uh, the time, but she used to think that the universe is God. Right. Right. So that's pantheism. And a concord is the agreement of harmony between people or groups. And May believed concords, which she referred to as, quote, harmonic or sympathetic relationships, could be established by rituals. Sounds sexy. She's just like, whatever. Can't get enough. Fucking mumbo jumbo, <laughs> I can say. I think she's like, the more people are confused, the better. Because the only thing I need them to be clear about is I'll give them wealth and immortality. But only if they give me all of their money first. So May and Ruth drew inspiration from a line in the Book of Revelations, which reads, quote, And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophecy for 1,260 days. Specific? So specific. And out of all of the shit in Revelation, it's a pretty boring bit. Yeah, I know, but they were like, but that's us. We're the two witnesses. There's two of us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could be that. 
Uh, let's take it. Yeah, let's take this line that specifically fits our narrative. How unchristian. <laughs> May prohibited members from purchasing apples because they are, of course, the forbidden fruit that caused man's fall and broke the tree of life or the tree of knowledge or the tree of good and evil or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, depending on which translation of the Bible you are friends with. Yeah, I really, really am milking my Catholic education on this show. We might as well make the most of it. Yeah. Make the most of all that trauma. Yeah. Are there Christians out there who like don't like apple trees? I really would not surprise <laughs> me. But there's also absolutely nothing in the Bible to indicate that it was an apple. Oh, really? No, it just says fruit. fruit. Yeah, the fruit of the tree. And Eve, she ate of the fruit and then did shit. I don't know, I can't remember the next bit. But also eating fruit in the Bible is a metaphor for having sex so as is washing feet go and read about it tell your mum tell your grandma she'll love it so apparently she had this apple aversion because the great 11 would be unable to set the tree of life right if they the followers consumed apples because its members would be reenacting the actor that screwed up the universe in the first place right of all of the cults we've covered on this show, this one is the least well thought out ideologically so far, I feel. Yeah, yeah. But it's the 20s. Everyone's on fucking heroin. I mean, <laughs> I'm not questioning why. No, oh, no, no. I'm just saying this is the one that I can follow the ideology the absolute least. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair enough. I don't know what's going on. Need to get you a spiritual dove. Uh-huh. So while May was in Oregon recruiting members, she got into a relationship with her stepbrother. Oh, come on. There are no other men around in Oregon you could have found? I mean, maybe not by this point. Where maybe. are we? What year is it? 1924? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. So would you like to know her stepbrother's name? Because it's another great name. His name is Ward, mm. like hospital ward. Okay. Ward Blackburn. Mm. Yeah, Ward should be a surname really, shouldn't it? Well, Ward, come here. Let's get married. Well, that's what she maybe said because the pair did actually end up getting married in 1924. And remember... That's her stepbrother. Oh wait, stepbrother means you're not related. Yeah, bloody blood related. You're not. You're not blood. <laughs> bloody. Yeah, yeah, you're not beating them black and blue. Yeah, not blood related, but still, I feel like it's still not ideal. No. So that same year, May met the nephew of a local oil magnate, and his name was Clifford Dabney. How did these names like fall out of the vernacular? <laughs> you don't hear enough of these anymore. And he actually joined the cult and offered May. $40,000 in cash as well as property. The property was 164 acres of land that sprawled across a canyon in Simi Valley, California, about an hour north of Los Angeles. So prime real estate there that mm -hmm. he's given up. Well, I'm saying that. I don't know California, but it sounds like it, it is. It is now. It's probably just fucking desert then. Yeah. <laughs> so in return, all May had to do was show Clifford where he could find the hidden treasure and oil that she had been banging on about Oh, okay. Clifford knows what he's doing. Big Cliff. Clifford the, the big dog. red dog. <laughs> Clifford the big red oil magnate. He's fucking on to you. He's like, I'll give you all of this, but tell me where the oil and the treasure is then. May also convinced other California citizens to sell their belongings and give the proceeds to the Great Eleven to expedite the printing of her very important book. She obviously told them that the book would ultimately lead them all to gold. Which, to be fair, is probably why they're in California in the first place. Very possibly. So May managed to generate close to $300,000 from her donors. That's nearly $5 million in today's money. And then May Otis Blackburn moved her followers, about 100 of them, 
to the land in Simi Valley, California. The LA Times would eventually refer to the colony as Harmony Hamlet, which sounds like a retirement village in Florida. (laughs) It does. It sounds like a retirement village for like uh, previously squabbling couples. Come here to Harmony Hamlet, where you can live the rest of your life in peace. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Also, this is obviously where we are entering classic cult territory. She got the land and now she's moving them all out there for some communal living. Exactly. And even though the press were calling it Harmony Hamlet, the members referred to it as The Work. And by that, they meant, of course, The Work of God. That's quite a scary name. The Work. The Work. Mm. And then the cult built a dozen cabins and a temple filled with furniture, including a massive gilded wood throne weighing 800 pounds, which sounds a little bit like a golden calf, no? (laughs) I feel like you're probably not supposed to have one of those in a temple. Oh, because no brazen... No icons. No icons. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, they're like, it's fine because it's a chair. We're going to sit on it. Cutting it fine, I would say. The temple was sealed off, ready for the coming of the Lord. Okay, so maybe it's fine if God's going to sit on the giant icon. And the cult's only black member was assigned to guard the temple. And while the only black person was guarding the temple, other members worked at the local tomato packing shed. (laughs) I think I'd rather guard the temple. Oh, no. May and Ward Blackburn would collect their followers' checks every payday from their tomato packing careers, and they would do this in their chauffeur-driven car. Wow. Yes, Sarice slowly shaking her head. If you well, if you can't see, you definitely can't see. Obviously, it's an audio format. Obviously. No, I'm just thinking like the confidence you would have to have to be made and just be like, go work at the local tomato packing shed mm-hmm. and I'll come pick up the checks every week in my chauffeur-driven car. And I know it's the 19-something, so she can't just be like, beep. <laughs> but she'd just be like, wind her window down and stick her hand out. I'm like, the gall, the gall uh, of this woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. At night, the devotees gathered on a hillside to watch the so-called high priestess, dressed in long purple robes, kill mules, which they referred to as the, quote, jaws of death. So they do, you know, coming back to what we were saying at the start, the idea of her believing that things can be achieved through rituals. Mm. She's like, yeah, we're all just going to meet up every night on this hill I'm going to wear purple and I'm going to kill some mules which arguably quite an easy animal to kill if yeah. you're going to call it the jaws of death I'd kind of want to see something a bit she's more exciting she's not a very hard worker no that's, that's true. what I think like a lot of other cult leaders we've come across they really put in the hours <laughs> she's kind of phoning it in a bit she's yeah. like, I'm going to kill this mule and forest rangers also reported seeing the group dance around naked <gasps> A gasp. A gasp. Kill the mule, dance naked. And May told her followers that God would punish anybody who fell away from her order. And that punishment would most likely be fateful. So up next, the corpse of a teenage girl, a missing husband and a potential human sacrifice are all linked to the Great Eleven cult. Let's get into what you're all here for, some of the disturbing events that led to the end of May Otis Blackburn's cult. In 1924, May's mother, who also lived on the commune, was chained and padlocked to her bed for 75 days. 
May would later claim that an angel had told her that her mother needed to be kept on point, that's a quote, in order for the stars to influence her fate properly. The mother later claimed that the days she spent in chains were some of the happiest of her life. And she especially liked it when the angels came and spoke to her. Oh, no. I know. No, that's very not great, isn't it? I know. Makes me cold on the inside. So Martha and William Rhodes moved to the commune with their 16-year-old daughter, Willa, who became a priestess known as the Tree of Life. Definitely no apples for her. Yeah, no apples. May Blackburn didn't give Willa any apples, but she did give her seven puppies that were supposed to represent the seven tones of Angel Gabriel's trumpet. That sounds quite nice. That's not a bad present. Seven puppies. It's quite a handful, though. For a 16-year-old girl, seven puppies does seem like quite a lot of responsibility, but she is the tree of life, so (laughs) she's probably got it covered. For your average 16-year-old, seven puppies is too much work, but uh, (laughs) not for Willa. And on Christmas Day, 1924... Willa ended up getting a toothache that eventually turned into an infection. And then tragically, she actually died about a week later. Imagine dying of a tooth infection. Apparently people still do if you ignore it. People like scared of the dentist and don't go uh, to the dentist uh-huh. and they've got like a big cavity. And, and then, then they, they get sepsis. And, yeah. and then they get sepsis and they're like, you should have just gone to the dentist. I know you're scared, but you're now dead. I need to go to the dentist. They sent me an email. I need to go to the dentist. (laughs) Also, who's looking after all these puppies now? But anyway, so you probably are guessing, dear listener, where this is going, which teenage girl's corpse we're talking about, because May put Willa's body in a bathtub, threw in some ice, spices and salt, and declared that, quote, the tree, meaning Willa, would come back to life in 1,260 days. She's even a lazy embalmer. I know, she's so lazy. I think she's also quite lazy because I know I was like, what happened to those puppies? Well, I'll tell you because uh, she was like, we're not looking after these. She killed all seven of the puppies and laid them to rest with <sighs> Willa. Leave the dogs alone. I feel like, was she just like obsessively in love with this 16-year-old? Here's seven puppies. I love you. You're the tree of life. Oh, you're dead. We're going to keep your body. Maybe. Maybe. And uh, in case you're thinking this is gross enough that they're keeping this teenager's dead body in a bathtub in the house, well, it gets worse because occasionally Willa's body was taken out for a spin around Los Angeles in the backseat of a car. All right, Salvador Dali. Like, I mean, it's the spirit of the time. Everyone was at it. Context, context. In February 1926, May told Willa's parents that the resurrection wasn't going to happen as soon as she thought. She claimed that Willa had been sacrificed to save the world. One Great Eleven member whose sister was paralysed and unable to speak believed that the Great Eleven would be able to help her. They laid the sister on a brick platform underneath burning hot bricks. So basically they barbecued her and they did that for two whole days and unsurprisingly she died. Bloody hell. What a way to go. Oh my God. Roasted to death. It's like buried alive and roasted to death. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Being walled up. That's what they used to do to unwed mothers and stuff, isn't it? Just brick them up. So many horrible things. Also, like, the broiling situation here kind of reminds me of, like, the brazen bull. Mm. Not nice. Some members, after this happened, did try to leave the colony, but they were physically prevented from doing so. On February 27th, 1928, an auto dealer was driving in the area of the colony when a girl ran up to his car in a panic. She told him that she was afraid for her life. And two armed men appeared and forced the girl away from the car. 
So they've really just gone from God will do something if you leave to like, no one's buying that anymore. We're going to have to physically restrain people. Exactly. So in total, four members of the cult disappeared, including Ruth's husband, Sam Rizzio. Sam's brother was convinced that Sam was dead or was being held captive. Just before Sam's disappearance, he had an altercation with Ruth and there was circumstantial evidence that he may have been poisoned but no body has ever been found. Another member, 24-year-old Harleen Satoris, was found dead on the colony. The doctor who examined her body refused to sign a death certificate, but another physician did and stated that stomach ulcers had caused the death. And uh, remember Clifford, the big red oil tycoon from earlier, Clifford Dabney? How could I forget? How, who could forget? Me, apparently, because I didn't get through his name. He was the guy who gave May the land in California where she moved all of her faithful. And he also gave her about $40,000 in 1920s money, which is about 700 grand today in our post many recession bullshit depression money. Well, Clifford in 1929 sued May when she failed to hold up her end of the bargain, which was, of course all of the gold and the riches that she knew were not there. Other members who'd handed over large sums of money to May also filed grand theft charges totaling to $50,000. But May wasn't bothered. She was not worried at all. While in jail, the angel Gabriel came to visit her, she said, and told her that she would be acquitted. That's nice of them. Yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of time on his hands, says Gabe. Mm-hmm. But May was convicted of grand theft and released on $10,000 bail in 1930. But she appealed her case, and in 1931, much like the predictions of Angel Gabriel, the California Supreme Court actually did acquit her. Okay, so I know their logic makes no sense, but so far they've saved the world and they have predicted their acquittal correctly. So maybe they are the ones. Maybe, maybe. So Ruth and May were never actually charged with the deaths or disappearances of any of the people from the colony. And May Ojas Blackburn died on the 17th of June, 1951. And Ruth died in December, 1978. Ruth stuck around. They did all right. They did all right. And maybe, just maybe, they did actually save the world in 1925. Maybe God is a woman. (laughs) Two. So yeah, wow, that is quite the confusing story. I think uh, not the most industrious cult leaders we've ever come across. But absolutely the first time an angel has uh, predicted correctly on this show. Absolutely. So there you go. Take from this episode what you will. Let's all go up to the valley and dance naked. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Sariti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we just want to mention that for today's episode, we referenced reporting from the Los Angeles Times and the book Cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort. And remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. 
And if you like us and you want to listen to us talk about some more true crime, you can come on over and listen to Red Handed wherever you listen to your podcasts. Most recently, we are releasing an episode on the DC Snipers, who were, of course, a pair of kind of, not really kind of like this, because these two were actually mother and daughter. They were pretending to be father and son. Mm -hmm. Went on a spree-style killing across DC and killed 10 people in the space of about two weeks. So quite the story. And when you find out why they did it, all the more shocking. So come on over and listen to that. And we'll see you there or here next time. Bye. Goodbye. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters and Tracy Levy. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood and fact-checking by Cara McAleen. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>